Bibles, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to have our text tonight from verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. And the message tonight is a light in the darkness. A light in the darkness. In chapter 8 of the book of Isaiah, the prophet has been speaking to the people of Judah about a terrible time of suffering and chaos that was coming to the land. And that was because the king of the land and the people had forsaken their God. I think we could say the exact same thing about our nation tonight. The people are afraid, being afraid of what was coming. They were seeking help. But they were seeking help from sorcerers and necromancers, which are people who spoke to the dead. They were seeking them for guidance instead of the Almighty God. And the prophet Isaiah warns the people that because of their unbelief and those who have abandoned God, it's going to bring sure punishment to the nation. And in their suffering, they're going to look around for comfort but they're not going to find any. And the prophet Isaiah is predicting a time of terrible judgment in his day. And it's not a pretty picture that Isaiah is painting for the people. But here's the neat thing about this. Isaiah sees a ray of hope off in the distance. Now, the, now chapter 9 of Isaiah was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. It was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And as we all see, that that prophecy came to pass, showing the truth of the Bible and the infallibility of the Bible. So Isaiah sees this ray of hope off into the distance, this ray of hope, this light that will be coming into the darkness. And so... In this darkness, Isaiah cries out in verse 1. He says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her. That is, and despair will not go on forever. And then in verse 2, he goes on to say, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, a prophesying of Christ. He says, for those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And that was the message that Isaiah was giving to the people, even in the dark time that was coming. He's telling them there will be no more gloom because the Redeemer will come. And he's going to bring to the world the dawning of a new day, which we are all, I know, looking forward to. Now I want to read verse 6, which is the um, uh, subject of our text. And here's the promise that Isaiah is predicting for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful <clears throat> counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace we hear that every christmas we see it on christmas cards we sang about it tonight it's a wonderful promise wonderful prophecy Here Isaiah was declaring both the humanity and the deity 
of Jesus Christ. He said a child is born, a child representing his humanity. He said, and a son will be given, representing his deity. Jesus Christ was 100% man and 100% God. The child born to us is Jesus, who would become the people's deliverer, their Messiah and Savior. Jesus grew up and he ministered in this area to which Isaiah is prophesying about. This is why they were going to see a great light. And this was speaking of his life and the light that he would bring. John the Beloved, the apostle of love, also referred to Jesus as the light. John in his gospel said, The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So, again, we have the prophecies. We have Jesus when he came referring to himself as that marvelous light. And notice that even in the worst of times, which Isaiah was prophesying about, even in the worst of times, God's people have comfort for themselves. Something to put them to rest and to balance out their troubles. Even though they were persecuted, even though they were persecuted, Paul said they're not forsaken. Though they're sorrowful because of the things are, the way they are, he says, yet they're always rejoicing. In a time of great darkness, God promised to send a light. That light who would shine on everyone living. This message of this blessed hope was fulfilled on that first Christmas morning of which we have been celebrating ever since when Christ was born when he set up his eternal kingdom that one day will replace this temporal earthly kingdom Jesus was born to save his people from their sins and the consequences of sin and the child was born to be king the king of all kings and notice what it's in, it said in, in verse 6, was that the government will be upon his shoulders, figuratively speaking. Not just the government of the universe, but the government of our lives. This refers to the kingly robe to be worn by the Messiah, Jesus. And as king, he will be responsible to govern the nation. In Isaiah's day, Judah's leaders were incompetent. In governing the people. But the Messiah, he will govern properly and he will govern righteously. Not only the government of the world in general, but of the church especially. This child is born to royal majesty, he is king of the saints, and his government involves ruling the hearts of the people. Ruling in the hearts of the people. He will establish laws for them precepts, principles, and he will help them to live by them. You know, he, he, he asks us of things and to commands us of things, and, and yet he also gives us the ability to submit to those things. So he will assist them in governing their enemies as well. He'll protect them. He'll protect the people and their belongings, their rights and their freedoms, and supply them with everything necessary in this life, in the afterlife as well. This government, this rule is entrusted to him from the Father. And it was entrusted to him, Christ, by him, the Father. 
And this, this, this rule is not of this world. It's spiritual. It's righteously governed. It's peaceable. And it will continue forever. His government was laid upon Christ by his Father. But it wasn't against Christ's will. And it carries the idea, this, this government, it carries the idea of a heavy honor that would be carried by Christ, whose shoulders are fit for the job, and that he is the crutch and the support of his church and his people, who are safe under his government and protection. He's the sovereign and the only one that can ever rule this world so as to realize its true ideal of blessing, what God meant it to be from the very beginning. Man has under, uh, been under and tried the government of kingdoms, and they've all failed. And the last picture that we have of many people with many leaders is the book of Revelation. And they're all gathered to fight against the Lord. The true king of all kings is God's holy son. The question is, is he your king tonight? A very important question. Is he your king tonight? Have you turned over the government, the rule of your life, into his hands and given him the lordship of your life? And the question is, you ask yourself, why not? Why not? Isaiah here in this verse has given us a set of titles. These are distinguished titles. And they speak of the excellent qualities of the newborn king. Isaiah says, first of all, in verse 6, he will be called wonderful. Notice, he will be called wonderful. So many reasons why he's to be called wonderful. Not that he should commonly, commonly be called by this name wonderful, nor by any of the other names that Isaiah will mention here. But they're titles of character, of his attributes. But again, it, it, and, you know, it's, they're attributes that, that are a part of his name. And we receive the rest that he gives us in those names. He's wonderful in his person. He's wonderful in his glory and the beauty of that glory. That should be God and man in one person. Two natures, different from the other. But united in him, that he, being truly God, should become man. He's wonderful in the character of his mind. He's wonderful in the, char- in the qualities he possesses. He's wonderful in his love to his people. He's wonderful in his sympathy with them. He's wonderful in his humility, in his meekness, in his patience, and in his wisdom. He's wonderful in his conduct, in his courage, and, the, and his greatness. He was one, he's wonderful in his life. In his private life, many wonderful things are recorded of him. The psalmist said, For you are great and do wondrous or wonderful things. You alone are God. Jesus lived a simple and humble, quiet life for 30 years. And his public life, was nothing but a, a long list of wonders. He was wonderful in his death that he should die at all. That he should die with his and his father's consent. 
Jesus, was, Jesus allowed, was, was allowed himself to die. They didn't take his life. He gave it. And he gave it to die for sinners. Even the worst of sinners. No matter who you are, what you did, what you look like, where you came from, he died for every soul. And by his death, he assured life for us. He abolished death. He rendered it inoperable. And he destroyed the one that had the power of it, which was the devil. And he obtained eternal salvation and redemption. He's wonderful in his resurrection for the dead or from the dead, which was by his own power. He was wonderful in his ascension to heaven. He was wonderful in his entrance into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, praying for us, praying for us. How wonderful he would be in his second coming, filling some with joy and others with terror. The word wonderful, speaking of Christ, signifies not only wonderful, but a miracle itself, as Christ is in his person. Isaiah not only called him wonderful here in verse 6, he also called him counselor. Counselor. This title emphasizes Christ's wisdom. The Apostle Paul said, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This title belongs to Christ and it has to do with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the works of nature, providence, grace, and salvation. So you see, God doesn't need any counsel. God doesn't have a committee to give him advice as how to run the world and to rule people, to love people, to guide people. We have to admit, we need wise counsel a lot of the time. And we need, wise, we need dependence on divine guidance. Because we can all admit, life is confusing sometimes. It is difficult. It is full of problems. It is upsetting. It's obvious that we need a counselor. And the prophet Isaiah prophesies of a heavenly counselor that has come. James, in his letter, chapter 1, verse 5, said, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. He won't get on your case for asking. He won't scold you or say, hey, you know what? How many times are you going to, you know, call upon me and, and ask me for wisdom? Solomon said, lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. You see, a counselor is somebody who advises and gives instruction. He guides us in making decisions and he guides us in our behavior. He's involved in the details of life, directing life through its disasters and, and the critical stages that we go through in life. Counselors become caretakers of the disasters of life. Being a counselor, it's, a, it's an overwhelming responsibility. What are the important qualifications of a counselor? He needs to be close so that we can talk to him. He needs to be accessible. And Solomon said, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that's Christ. Jesus is as close as the whisper of a prayer. He's always available. You don't have to pick a number like in the market or wherever you might be and just you know, pick a number and wait your turn. He's never far away. 
He's never too busy to hear you, to listen to you. He'll always hear our prayer and help us in our need when we come to him in faith. In, in Psalm 50, verse 15, he said, Call on me when you're in trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. He said, Call on me when you're in trouble, I'll rescue you, but you know what? You give me the honor. He's compassionate, he's tender, he's loving and concerned for us. Like I said, we're not a number to him or an appointment. We're, we're one of his children. We're not a problem or a bother to him. We're a person with a problem. And we have potential. And he knows that. And he sees that. And he always has time for us. He's mindful of us. And he knows our needs. And even before we ask them. Before we ask for those needs. He already knows what they are. A counselor has to know the person well to be counseled. Now, some counselors can't help or fail. They can't help or they fail because they never reach a, a, a total understanding of the person. And it's really hard to recognize all the complications of human emotions and, and, and motivation and the makeup of our mind that orders so much of our life. So much of people's lives is ruled by their emotions. And emotions, man, they, they are not dependable. They are up and down depending on what I'm feeling at that moment. Emotions are all over the place. And that's why a lot of times psychology often fails to help people with their problems because they can't see into the heart or the mind of the person. But the writer of Hebrews says, this high priest of ours, speaking of Christ, understands our weaknesses because he faced all of the same things that we do, all of the testings that we go through. You see, he was 100% man when he was here on earth, on earth as well as 100% God. He experienced every emotion, every situation, every trial that we have ever experienced. That's what makes him a good counselor. Who knows best how to counsel you is the one who has been what you've gone through or are going through. The Apostle John wrote and said this about Jesus. He knew all men. He didn't need anybody to tell him about human nature because he knew what was in a man. Jesus knows and understands us better than we know ourselves. He is the chief cardiologist. The best heart doctor that you could have. Acts 15 he says, God knows the heart. And the psalmist said, for he knows the secrets of the heart. He knows the things that you think you're the only one that knows. So as a counselor, he's more than qualified. He's more than able. He has the resources of power and help to put at our disposal. Jesus is omniscient. He's wisdom in the flesh. He's inerrant in his counsel to us. He'll always lead us to the right place in the right direction. Another important qualification of a counselor is that he's able to communicate and help the person to discover the resources needed for their particular situation. We can communicate with Jesus through prayer and he with us. He's also left for us his counselor's manual for the heart, the Bible. The word of God, the inerrant word of God to communicate his word to us. The book of life. He didn't just create us and create this world and put us in it and then say, hey, now let's see how you get along. 
That's how you work out the issues of life. He left us the word of God to give us direction, to give us help where to find it. There's an acronym for the Bible, for B-I-B-L-E. It's Biblical Instructions Before Leaving Earth. The owner's manual. And like many times, we're, we got a part that we're assembling and how many, I don't need the instructions. And when we're done, it doesn't work or there's parts left over. Then what do we do? Ah, where was that manual? I just, you know, it's the same thing with life. We leave God out. We don't need God or that's what we think. And then when it falls apart and it's not going good, I, I, need, I need to find out, hey, how do I make this work? The word of God. It's ever faithful. It's inerrant. Because Christ is the preeminent counselor. That makes him, as it says here, counselor, wonderful counselor. The prophet Isaiah in verse 6 also calls Christ the mighty God. Notice, his name will be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God. Or God the mighty one. He is said to be God manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He's blessed forever. He's the great God. He's the living God. He's the true God and eternal God. He is the mighty one as seen by the works that he did before coming to earth in his incarnation. As the creation of all things out of nothing. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He just speaks it into existence or he, he, just, he, he speaks it and it disappears. He just calls it out. He's the mighty God, the manager of all the affairs of providence. There's nothing that's done that he is not involved with. In the opening statement of John's gospel, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John tells us this, in the beginning, that is before all time, was the Word, which is a, a, another name for Christ. And the Word, or Christ, was with God, and, the, and, and Christ was God Himself. He was present originally with God. All things were made and came into existence through Him, and without Him was not even one thing made that has come into being. Jesus was eternally existent. In, uh, eternally existent. He had fellowship with God, and He was God, and is God. He has no beginning. He has no end. John tells us that he created everything that there is and nothing exists that he didn't make. He's the mighty God. So Jesus, before he came to earth, his hands tossed the solar systems and the galaxies into space. He put the stars in their orbits. He started the fires of the sun. He scooped out the giant craters for our huge oceans. He created every eye of every insect. He painted the colors of every flower. He designed the, the intricate shape of every snowflake. He's the one who has made all things bright and beautiful, all things great and small. Jesus was mighty in his birth. Think of it, birth of a virgin. Mighty in his birth when time was invaded by eternity and divided them into two, time and eternity. He was mighty in his ministry on earth. He was mighty in his incomparable miracles. He was mighty in his teachings, making them indestructible. The word of God has been with us for, you know, for, for thousands of years. 
And man has tried to destroy it, to stamp it out. And they're, t- they're trying today to do it. They're trying to get rid of the word of God today. But it's still with us. It's indestructible. It's indestructible so that man could never forget God's word. He was mighty in his death as he rescued us from the hell that we deserve. And he made us heirs to the heaven that we gave up through sin. He was mighty in his resurrection as he arose. He rose as a mighty conqueror. And he will be mighty when he comes again in his matchless and exceeding glory. And then next in Isaiah 6, Isaiah called him the everlasting father or father of eternity. Usually we think of the name Father as being God the Father, but here it belongs to Christ, the Father of eternity. Christ and the Father are one. And the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. And he that has seen the Father has seen the other, and yet they are distinct. God the Father, God the Son. So Isaiah speaks of Jesus as the eternal one, and as the one who possesses eternity. Jesus always was. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He was there in the beginning when everything was created. Now people say, who was? Who was? Past tense. Who was Buddha? Who was Muhammad? Who was Confucius? But people always say, who is? Not was. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus isn't only the Lord of the past and the present, but he's a possessor, the possessor of eternity. Jesus holds the future in his hands. We may not know the future. Well, we don't know the future. We we for sure don't know what the future holds for us. But we know who holds the future. And because Jesus is eternal... And he's put eternity into our hearts. That's why we're preoccupied with a sense of destiny. We want to know, man, I wonder what's... And again, we're coming to a new year. And we hear, and you know, my wife and I say, man, I wonder what the new year is going to bring. I wonder what's going to happen in the year to come. Hey, will I still be here? Or will God take me home? Because... God is, a, is, is eternal and he's, and he's put eternity in our hearts. We want to know these things. We're, we're always thinking about tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow? We often look into the future wondering what it holds for us. He's the father of the world to come. And our life is so much larger than we think and dream. There's so much more to life than, than, than meets the eye when you're connected to the one called Everlasting Father. And lastly, in verse 6, Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And Christ is a prince, often called so in Scripture. And he's a prince by birth. He was King David's son in his lineage. The son of God. Prince of peace by position, by power and authority. He's a prince. He's exalted to be a prince and a savior. And he is a prince superior to all kings. 
being the prince of the kings of the earth. And he is called the prince of peace because he is the author of peace. Just as he said to, the, said to be the prince of life, he's the prince of peace for the same reason. He is the author of peace. And it's recognizable that when he was born, there was a general peace over the land. That Christmas morning when he was born, there was a peace over the land in general. Not only in the Roman Empire, but in all the world. And it's significant that at this time, when the Chinese Empire enjoyed a profound peace, he changed his name. And he wouldn't be called by his name, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Nagaeus, but he changed it to Pingus which signifies peaceable, peaceable. Peace often seems to be the most desired and yet hardest to find treasure in life. One of the most desired treasures, peace. We don't have a lot of peace in our nation today. There are a lot of people who don't have peace in their lives today. We can see it through the divisions, the, 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 the class divisions that we have. There is no peace today. The world tonight is crying out for peace. We have wars after wars after wars. There have been wars since man was created. Man is also plagued and tormented by emotional and mental disorders. Because of life, because of the way things are in the world, because of things that are happening, those things take away the peace within man. And we see many out on the streets today suffering from emotional and mental disorders. Man fears so many different things that psychologists have have names for, for all of them from A to Z. And a great author of the word of God and a great preacher said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart and you know what nobody can change a man's heart but Jesus Christ when he comes into that heart peace isn't so much an environmental problem or disorder you know like air pollution it's an inward experience Jesus gives inner stability to the life during the anxiety that's going on outside. Jesus said in, in John 14, 27, he said to his disciples, peace I live with you. I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus also said, the thief does not come expect, except to steal and to kill and to destroy. He said, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Are you experiencing abundant life tonight? Or are you just merely existing from day to day? Jesus said, the thief, he's talking about the devil. He has not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. And he is stealing people's peace. He's killing people today through the lies of this world. And he's destroying lives. 
And as the Prince of Peace, Jesus gives us his peace. And that applies to three main relationships. He enables us to have peace in our relationship with God. How? By his work of reconciliation. That is, by making things right with man and God. Sin separates man from God. And the cross of Calvary was a great bridge to bridge that gap between man and God, to bridge that impassable gulf between man and God. Nothing can bring a man to God but the cross of Calvary where Jesus gave up his life to forgive man of his sins and to bring him to God through himself. You know, it, 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 man was, it was in his fallen condition because of the garden, what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. But Christ came to bring us back to, again, his himself. Jesus enables us to have peace with ourselves. He resolves the inner conflicts and the tensions that are like thieves that rob our peace. And he, reta- he restrains the war within ourselves and our heart. The war between the sensual and the spiritual nature. By the power and the work of his spirit. When we're at peace with God and with ourselves, then we'll be at peace in the third area of relationship with others. People are at such odds with others tonight as a nation, families. When the vertical relationship is right, that is the one between you and God, when the vertical relationships are right, the horizontal relationships will be right, those down here on earth with each other. If we can't love God, how can we love one another? If we don't love God, how do we love one another? These four titles given to Christ here by the prophet Isaiah speak of four divine characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful counselor speaks of his conscience, his omniscience. He's all-knowing. Mighty God speaks of his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Everlasting Father speaks of his omnipresence. He's present in all places at all times. And then the Prince of Peace relates to our positive well-being and his attribute of being unlimited, omnificent in his creative power on our behalf. Isaiah in another place gives us the secret of peace. Isaiah said, you will keep him... In other words, God will keep him, that person, in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You want to know perfect peace? Have your mind on Christ because you trust in him. When our hearts and our minds are centered and focused on Christ, we'll know his peace during the storms of life. So this Christmas... We ought to say like the great Apostle Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He also said the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It doesn't cost us anything. It costs Jesus everything. The gift was wrapped in pretty, uh, wasn't wrapped in pretty paper with nice ribbons and bows. The gift came in ragged clothing of humanity. 
And this gift was placed under, uh, wasn't placed under a tree. You know, by a warm fireplace, but in a smelly stable carved out of rock. Those little fingers born to Mary, wrapped around her finger, holding on to her for dear life, would one day open up and allow huge spikes to be driven through them for you and me. Jesus gave up everything so that you and I could have everything. Jesus died so that you and I could live. He paid the price for your sin and my sin because we couldn't. Jesus denied himself so that he could give to you and me. Jesus became poor so that you and I could become rich. Not necessarily in the things of the world, but in things that this world can't give you. The things that people are looking for tonight. Why would he do that for us? Because that's what love does. Love does what's best for the one being loved. So in closing, is there room for him in your heart this Christmas? Or like the innkeeper, you tell him, not tonight. Come another time. I just don't have room for you in my life. Someone, someone said, his holy hands shaped the branches where the thorns grew that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined in secret places that he designed. He made the forests where the tree would grow and the cross that was made out of it and his body where it would hang. The cross would stand on a hill that he had made. The sun that hid from him by his order was hung in space. The sky that darkened over his head the day he was crucified over the earth was spread by him. And that spear that spilled his precious blood was tempered in the fires of God. The grave where his body was laid was made, by, made in rocks by his hands. Again, that's why Isaiah called him Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, born on Christmas Day to us. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. And Father, we are so familiar with this verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But uh, Father, I pray that this evening we find it to be more than just a biblical verse. Something more than what we read on Christmas cards. Something more that we sing about. But, Father, we would see by these distinct names given to Christ how wonderful he is. What a great counselor he is. What a mighty God he is. And he has no end. And he's the Prince of Peace. No one will ever explain Experience true peace until they've made peace with God through Christ. 
And before we leave, I would not do the right thing without offering you tonight the opportunity to receive the Christ of whom we just read about and learned about. As we're praying and whatever our thoughts are now about God, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and you recognize the greatness of God in Christ. And if you recognize your need for Christ and you want to receive him as your Lord and your Savior, it's through a simple prayer of faith. I'm going to say this prayer out loud for you to repeat to the Lord with all of your heart if you want to receive him as Lord and Savior. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, just raise up your hand and put it down again. Raise up your hand and put it down again. I'm going to say this prayer out loud, and even if you didn't raise your hand, that's fine. If you say this prayer with all sincerity, the Bible says that Christ will come in, and he will be your Lord, and he'll be your Savior. Pray this, Lord, to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, for those who say that prayer, God writes your name in the book of life. Your sins are forgiven. Clean slate. Begin, begin brand new. And if you said that prayer, we encourage you, get a Bible. If you don't have one, we'll be more than glad to give you one. Find a good Bible teaching church, a Bible teaching church, not one that preaches about everything under the sun other than Christ. And if you live close by, you're more than welcome to come here. You guys have an awesome Merry Christmas. Uh, Tomorrow morning, Christmas Day, Sunday, we are going to have our services 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So again, uh, hopefully we'll see you here tomorrow morning. God bless you guys. Have a great Christmas.